What do movies like Yorgos Lanthimos's The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Jean-Pierre Jeunet's Amelie, and Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth have in common with literary works like Toni Morrison's Beloved, Laura Esquivel's Like Water for Chocolate, Haruki Murakami's Kafka on the Shore, and Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. Hello and welcome to another episode of Majorly Useless, a philosophy and literature podcast. As always, I'm your host, Teal Reynolds. Recent episodes of the show have definitely skewed more towards the philosophy side of things. So in this episode, I'm going to be looking at one of my favorite literary modes, magical realism, which is not fantasy. So if you aren't a fantasy fan, don't tune out just yet. As I'm sure you've figured, the answer to my opening question is that all of those works fall under the magical realism category. And while we won't be looking at the movies, if you have seen any of them, they're a really good frame of reference to help you identify how magical realism actually differs from fantasy. This episode will cover what magical realism is, a brief history of it in literature, and then of course its application in different literary works. When you take the name magical realism at face value, it seems like a bit of a paradox. How can something be both magical yet real? Firstly, let's hone in on the realism aspect. On the realist genre, French writer Jean Cocteau wrote in Le Mystique Lake, True realism consists in revealing the surprising things which habit keeps covered and prevents us from seeing. Realist novels are rooted firmly in reality. They seek to present life as it is, and often include more mundane plot points to replicate real life. They very much reflect the societies in which they are set and tell the stories of their inhabitants. And magical realism is very much the same in this regard. Where they differ, of course, is that realism avoids speculative fiction and fantastical elements. Whereas a magical realist work will carry with it an undercurrent of magic running throughout the storyline. How this magic operates is what sets magical realist works apart from the fantasy genre. In Scheherazade's Children, Magical Realism in Postmodern Fiction by Wendy Farris, Farris writes, Magical realism combines realism and the fantastic in such a way that the magical elements grow organically out of the reality portrayed. There are a lot of factors which may or may not be a part of a magical realist text, but really, I think there are just two main ones to get your head around. First, the magic in magical realist works is never properly explained, and second, the magic is often not ever really acknowledged or seen as anything out of the ordinary. This is something called authorial reticence, which Amaral Beatrice Shanity describes in Magical Realism and the Fantastic as the deliberate withholding of information and explanations about the disconcerting fictitious world. The magic is definitely not as overt as in the fantasy genre either. It's much more matter-of-fact and just blends seamlessly into an otherwise very real storyline. If you're not familiar with this kind of storytelling and haven't encountered it before, if you pick up a text at random not realising it's a magical realist text and what this means, it can feel really frustrating at the start. Because wait, how is there magic and why is no one talking about it? But it is very intentional, and honestly, it's one of my favourite writing styles to read. 
That's why I think the thing that is interesting about the phrase magic realism is that when it's used, people tend only to hear the word magic. So, so they think it's just about fantasy. Um, but the word realism is as important. And, and uh, what this kind of writing tries to do is to be grounded in the real, to be grounded in an actual, quite strong vision of the real and then use techniques to express that vision which don't necessarily have to be realistic. That's a quote from Salman Rushdie, one of magical realism's contemporaries and the author of one of the works covered later in this episode, Midnight's Children. If the name Salman Rushdie sounds familiar but you can't quite place it, you may have heard of him regarding his novel The Satanic Verses, which is also a magical realist text. If this doesn't ring a bell, after the publication of the Satanic Verses, on Valentine's Day 1989, Rushdie received a call from a journalist to inform him that the Iranian government had issued a fatwa calling for Rushdie's death over the book. Over the following days, they added a $6 million bounty, and this sent Rushdie into hiding for the next near 10 years. During this time, he used the alias Joseph Anton, which is also the title of his memoir recounting this time. I'm getting a bit sidetracked, this is definitely a discussion to be had at length another time in another episode. For now, a brief history on magical realism in literature. There's a reason magical realism was born in Colombia. It's a country where dreams and reality are conflated. Where in their heads people fly as high as Icarus. But even magical realism has its limits. You may recognize that quote from Narcos. The audio was taken from episode 3, and the first of the quote is actually the opening title card for the pilot episode. And while Narcos is not exactly a magical realist show, this quote nicely leads up to what is magical realism and its history. While the technical term magical realism can be traced to German art history, in literature the term was first used by Latin American authors around the 40s with writers like Arturo Usla Pietri from Venezuela, Alejo Carpentier from Cuba, and Jorge Luis Borges from Argentina. You may have noticed that none of these authors are from Colombia, yet the Narcos quote specifically named Colombia as the birthplace of magical realism. This is likely due to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the Colombian author behind the highly revered 100 Years of Solitude, first published in 1967. As far as I can tell, this is the first full-length novel to receive widespread critical acclaim under the magical realist category, and really pushed magical realism as a literary mode into the global consciousness. Now, on to some stories. As mentioned, the works I'll be covering are Toni Morrison's Beloved, Laura Esquivel's Like Water for Chocolate, Haruki Murakami's Kafka on the Shore, and Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. A small warning, there will be slight spoilers ahead. However, I don't think they will dramatically ruin the reading experiences of any text you're yet to read. The simple truth is that truth does not exist. It all depends on a person's point of view. 
Laura Esquivel, Like Water for Chocolate. Like Water for Chocolate is a truly beautiful work of literature. I studied it during my undergraduate degree, and as you can imagine, studying a literature degree, I read a lot of books over the course of all my units, and a lot of them have just kind of blended in together. Yet, this is one that just really stands out quite clearly, and I just, I genuinely really loved. The protagonist, Tita, is the youngest daughter of the all-female de la Gaza family. Tradition dictates that as the youngest daughter, Tita may never marry and must take care of her mother, Mama Elena, until she dies. Tita has no control over her future and feels incredibly disenfranchised. These are some quotes that kind of illustrate Tita's relationship with her mother and also set the scene of the general household dynamics. Unquestionably, when it came to dividing, dismantling, dismembering, desolating, detaching, dispossessing, destroying, or dominating, Mama Elena was a pro. Everything under the house was under lock and key, strictly monitored. No one could take so much as a cup of sugar from the pantry without Mama Elena's authorization. Tita knew perfectly well that all these questions would have to be buried forever in the archive of questions that have no answers. In the De La Gaza family, one obeyed, immediately. A major plot point which happens at the beginning of the novel and significantly shapes the story to come is when Mama Elena organises the marriage of Tita's boyfriend Pedro to her sister. Pedro agrees to this, as he knows Mama Elena will never allow Tita to marry him, nor will Tita go against her mother. In Pedro's mind, this means that he'll be able to remain close to her for the rest of his life as they would all live in the same family home. Tita is understandably crushed, and the icing on the cake, she has to bake their wedding cake. This is obviously incredibly upsetting for her, and she ends up pouring all of her hurt and sadness into the cake that she bakes. This then gives us the following scene at the wedding, which really demonstrates how magical realism operates in Like Water for Chocolate. The moment they took their first bite of the cake, everyone was flooded with a great sense of longing. Even Pedro, usually so proper, was having trouble holding back his tears. Mama Elena, who hadn't shed a single tear over her husband's death, was sobbing silently. But the weeping was just the first symptom of a strange intoxication an acute attack of pain and frustration that seized the guests and scattered them across the patio and the grounds and into the bathrooms, all of them wailing over lost love. Everyone there, every last person, fell under the spell, and not very many of them made it to the bathrooms in time. Those who didn't joined the collective vomiting that was going on all over the patio. Only one person escaped. The cake had no effect on Tita. This is a really helpful example to understand how magical elements in magical realism can work. Tita doesn't cast a spell or do anything that we would typically expect in a fantasy novel to have a magical effect, but instead the intensity of her emotions were transferred through the cake to the wedding guests. It's never explained and no one finds the incident particularly strange. It just kind of happens and we move on. One two four was spiteful, 
Full of a baby's venom, the women in the house knew it and so did the children. For years, each put up with the spite in his own way, but by 1873, Setha and her daughter Denver were its only victims. The grandmother, Baby Suggs, was dead, and the sons, Howard and Beulah, had run away by the time they were 13 years old. As soon as looking in a mirror shattered it, that was the signal for Beulah. As soon as two tiny handprints appeared in the cake, that was it for Howard. Tony Morrison, Beloved. Not only did Beloved win the Pulitzer Prize in 1988, but it was also a contributing factor towards Morrison's 1993 Nobel Prize win. Significantly, Toni Morrison was the first black woman to ever win a Nobel Prize in any category. As you may have guessed from the opening quote, the magical realism in Beloved is much more direct with the ghost of Beloved haunting the home at 124 Bluestone Road, Cincinnati. Before we go further, a note on the text. Beloved deals with the trauma of slavery and racism, and it's inspired by real-life events. If you're a black listener or another person of colour and would prefer to skip this segment, please jump ahead to 1455. The opening quote to this segment comes literally from the first couple of lines of the book, and it really sets the scene. Beloved tells the story of a family of former slaves after the American Civil War. The story's protagonist, Setha, lives in her Cincinnati home on 124 Bluestone Road with her 18-year-old daughter, Denver. It's just the two of them left, and their home is being haunted by a malevolent spirit, whom is believed to be Beloved, the ghost of Setha's oldest daughter. Setha took Beloved's life in order to protect her from the horrors of slavery, And this is where the real-life inspiration for the novel comes in, coming from the true story of Margaret Garner. Obviously, The Ghost of Beloved is a very magical element, and this only escalates when a young woman comes to Setha's home with the same name. So it's clear that magical realism is a big part of the novel's plot. But aside from storytelling, how does this function in the novel as a whole? In Speaking the Unspoken, Rewriting Identity Loss and Memory of Slavery Through Magical Realism in Toni Morrison's Beloved by M.D. Abu Abdullah, Abdullah writes, Morrison uses the magical realist device of a ghost named Beloved who is the embodiment of collective memories of the black community, and who, by reminding Setha and the other ex-slaves of their past, allows them to tell their own story and to create their own version of history, thus enabling them to assert their identity which was lost through slavery. By dealing with historical issues critically and trying to cure historical wounds, magical realism in the novel mirrors history as well as strives to change it. What's real and what's true aren't necessarily the same. Salman Rushdie, Midnight's Children Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie is a critic's favourite, especially when it comes to the Booker Prize. Not only did Midnight's Children win the Booker Prize in 1981 for the year it was published, but it also won the 1993 Booker of Bookers, a special award to commemorate the Booker Prize's 25th anniversary, as well as the Best of the Booker Award in 2008 to commemorate the Booker Prize's 40th anniversary. In Midnight's Children, we meet Salim Sinai, born at the stroke of midnight on August 15, 1947, the exact moment India attained independence from British rule. Inexplicably, due to the timing of Salim's birth, he possesses telepathic powers and is linked to a network of 1,000 other Midnight's children, each with powers of their own. Salim explains, 
At the precise instance of India's arrival at independence, I tumbled forth into the world. There were gasps, and outside the window, fireworks and crowds. A few seconds later, my father broke his big toe, but his accident was a mere trifle when set besides what had befallen me in that benighted moment. Because, thanks to the occult tyrannies of those blandly saluting clocks, I've been mysteriously handcuffed to history. My destiny is indissolubly chained to those of my country. Salim, now almost 31, feels his life is almost over, and so begins to recount his life story and the corresponding history of India's independence to his partner Padma. The book follows history relatively factually, interwoven of course with the magical realist fictional story. A really interesting quote to note from Rushdie himself. This is taken from the introduction to the vintage classics edition of Midnight's Children and is dated December 25th, 2005, London. In the West, people tend to read Midnight's Children as a fantasy, while in India, people thought of it as pretty realistic, almost a history book. Memories warm you up from the inside, but they also tear you apart. Haruki Murakami, Kafka on the Shore. Kafka on the Shore kind of oscillates between two very different stories as they begin to slowly converge together. In the odd-numbered chapters, we follow Kafka, a teenage runaway haunted by his familial relationships and an Oedipal curse. Why did I say curse so weirdly? Anyway, he sets out in search of his lost mother and sister, whom he has not seen since he was a child, nor can he remember them. He also occasionally interacts with his older ego, the boy named Crow. In the even-numbered chapters, we meet Nakata, an elderly man who, after falling into a coma in his childhood during World War II, has lost his ability to read or write. However, he's gained the ability to converse with cats. Because of this, when we meet him at the start, he's created part-time work for himself as a finder of lost housecats. The novel itself is set against a backdrop of contemporary Japan, with of course a magical realist twist that at times branches into surrealism. Fish fall from the sky, malevolent spirits take the form of Johnny Walker, yes, the whiskey brand, and we meet the personified Colonel Sanders. Interestingly, Murakami was toying with the idea of Mickey Mouse, but he found that Disney was a bit too finicky with their usage rights. We lose all sense of reality, logic, memory, and time throughout the novel, and it's often left up to the reader to interpret things as literally as they would like. The novel is a shifting puzzle, and even at its conclusion, you'll come away with thousands of questions. In the months following Kafka and the Shore's first publication in Japan, Murakami put out to the public a call for questions regarding the text. He received over 8,000 and managed to respond to over 1,200 of them online. On the text Murakami wrote, Kafka and the Shore contains several riddles, but there aren't any solutions provided. Instead, several of these riddles combine, and through their interaction, the possibility of a solution takes shape. And the form this solution takes will be different for each reader. To put it another way, the riddles function as part of the solution. It's hard to explain, but that's kind of the novel I set out to write. References to Greek mythology are also rife within the text. Of course, as mentioned earlier, Kafka is running away from an Oedipal curse, burdened upon him by his father. 
If you aren't familiar with Oedipus, essentially he was cursed to kill his father and be with his mother. Surprisingly, Jungian psychology plays a significant impact on the text. Fun little crossover of note, um, in Oedipus, the, I guess, prophecy that he would kill his father and be with his mother was given to his parents by the Oracle of Delphi. You may remember that name from the episode on Diogenes, who was allegedly the person who told Diogenes to deface the currency. It's completely off topic, but I just thought that was a fun little link. Anyway, back to Greek mythology in the text. Another example, Kafka's estranged father is a famous sculptor, with his most famous work entitled Labyrinth, in a nod to the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur and the Labyrinth of Crete. And you've probably seen this before. I'm pretty sure it's even done in a Simpsons episode. In the myth, the Labyrinth was designed to trap a Minotaur and is supposed to be inescapable. King Minos of Crete had been sending human sacrifices into the labyrinth to be eaten by the Minotaur, and in order to put an end to this, Theseus has to navigate the labyrinth, kill the Minotaur, and escape. In Kafka on the Shore, one of the other characters, Oshima, says to Kafka on the labyrinth, so the prototype for the labyrinth is, in a word, guts, which means that the principle for the labyrinth is inside you, and that correlates to the labyrinth outside. Tying back to magical realism in the text, in Privileging Oddity and Otherness, a study of Haruki Murakami's Kafka on the Shore by Reslina Takur and Vani Kuana, they write, The removal of the clearly demarcated boundaries between the mundane and the strange provides the work its magical realist stance. It emerges as a favourable mode for the other and the odd as... Magical realism is in itself a paradox, a lingering enigma. The exclusion which these characters face doesn't push them to the brink of despair, but absorbs them and acts as a stimulus for their personal growth and recovery. And on that note, that is definitely all we have time for today. This was a bit of a long episode, so if you've made it this far, thank you so much and I really hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can find the show on Instagram at Majorly Useless. Finally, I just want to give a really quick massive thank you to everybody who's been, I don't know, just supporting the show, listening to it. Um, some of you have been sharing on your Instagram stories, which has been a huge help in getting more listeners. It's honestly how most people seem to have found the show so far. If you do really like the show and want to show your support in a further way, if you have Apple Podcasts and have a few seconds to leave a rating and review, it is a massive help. Once again, thank you so much for listening and I'll be back in your ears very soon.